0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to be reading uh, all 14 verses of this chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, we have beheld a scene of glory that our minds cannot yet quite take in. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his gracious work now of of opening our minds to understand your word. We also pray that he would give us a deep and passionate love for your truth and that he would change our wills by this consideration of your word so that we are more and more faithfully obedient to him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The most important thing about me was something that Dr. Dockery did not mention. I am the husband of one wife. Her name is Catherine. And I am the father of two children, uh, children who were born our first term on the field, uh, both born in a little mission hospital in the Himalayas, in the same town where Osama bin Laden would later be found and killed, so that's their claim to fame. And uh, we had the privilege of raising our children overseas, which I highly recommend, by the way. It is much safer to raise your kids somewhere else than it is in the United States. This is a dangerous place. You wanna get out of here, but at any rate. My children heard certain things from me over and over and over again, so much so that even though today they are 30 and 28, my guess is that they still murmur these things in their sleep. And one of the most important of those things was, you are not the center of the universe. Now, this is a very necessary thing to tell young children. Um, You do not have to teach children to think of themselves as the center of the universe. They are born that way, and they act accordingly. Uh, My theology professor in seminary, Roger Nicole, used to say that he was aware of some theologians who didn't believe in original sin, but as far as he could tell, none of them had children. Children are born self-centered. And yet, dealing with the fallen heart of, of egotism is only half the issue they not only needed to grasp that they weren't the center of the universe just to correct their own inherent self-centeredness, they needed to grasp it because they needed to realize who the center of the universe actually is. See, our goal in parenting is not to create good, well-behaved little Pharisees. Our goal is to disciple our children into faithful, obedient disciples and trusting followers of the Lord Jesus. So they needed to grasp who the center of the universe is, and that would be the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. At the heart of a Christian worldview, the very center of it, is the understanding that God is primary and everything else, including us, is secondary and derivative. God is absolute and everything else is contingent on him. God is at the center of everything, And everything else only has meaning or significance as it relates to him and as it relates to him in subordination to him. In fact, I think one of the clearest signs of our sinfulness is the fact that we naturally resist this idea. Uh, It is one of the things most decried by our culture today, the idea that I am not the most important thing in my life. And I might add that one of the clear signs of the deity of Christ is that he receives worship as his natural right. He is there right alongside the one who sits on the throne, God the Father. And you remember that biblical religion is uncompromisingly monotheistic. The Old Testament was like one refrain after another of there is one and only one God. There is one and only one God, and no one has the right to be worshiped alongside him. And suddenly the New Testament shows up and the lamb is there with the one who is on the throne, rightfully receiving worship. Even angels refuse to receive worship from others, but the lamb receives it readily as his right. So in the light of uncompromising biblical monotheism, in this scene that we have just looked at, we have an essential element of the doctrine, doctrine of the Trinity. Now this passage is one of several amazing heavenly worship scenes in the book of Revelation. And as we unpack it, we're going to see very clearly that Jesus is the focus. It's Jesus as the lion, Jesus as the lamb who was slain, and Jesus as the redeemer of a global people. And so this chapter indissolubly links the work of Jesus on the cross with the destiny of human history and with global missions. That's why we're looking at it here today. Let's think about the context. This is the book of Revelation, one of the most glorious and most confusing books in the Bible. Um, it's, it's as though God said, I'm going to show you just a little bit of stuff that's going to cause you to have debates for, until Jesus comes back, and then it'll all be very, very clear. It um, begins with John in exile on the island of Patmos. He has a vision of the Son of Man, followed by seven letters to the churches, which have been interpreted a million different ways throughout church history. And then the scene switches to heaven in chapter 4. And once again, of course, there is fantastic awesomeness, as always, when God's in view. There's no actual attempt to describe him. Probably very, very wise. But there is worship for his holiness that has clear reflections of Isaiah chapter 6. In sight of the holiness of God, people fall on their faces, and so do angels and elders and creatures and everyone else. He is worshiped not only for his holiness, but also for his eternal and absolute existence. He is worshiped as the creator and sustainer of all things. And it's in that setting then that we come to the chapter that we just read. In chapter 5, a scroll comes into view in the right hand of God. It's a scroll we will learn in succeeding chapters that contain the decrees of God, which are decrees of judgment against a rebellious world. It's a clear sign that God is in control of human history and God will take his his vengeance on those who have rebelled against him. But this scroll is sealed. Now, seals often have a um, a sort of an undertone of, of authorization, of confirmation. Here, the seal primarily function to conceal what's going on. This is a future that is known only to God. It's off limits to all but the most worthy. And this realization, the realization that God indeed knows and is in control of where history is going, but John can't know it just yet, causes John to weep passionately. And this is not just idle, speculative curiosity. I fear sometimes our concern about end times is simply we're curious and we want to know, you know, we want to make sure our chart is exactly right down to the last detail. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that John has such an awe-filled love for God, he has a passionate desire to know the things of God. And so he's stuck with this dilemma. He, neither he nor any of the exalted beings in heaven, are worthy to open the scroll. And that's when Jesus comes on the scene. He's described and introduced as a lion. I mean, the very image of lion is one of power and majesty. And not just any old lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is linked into all of the promises of God to his servant David of a king who would rule on his throne forever. And that indeed is a symbol of the fact that he is, as we'll learn later on, king of kings and lord of lords. He has legitimate sovereignty. He is the fulfiller of prophecies and promises. And he is the lion who has conquered. What we're about to see that he has gone through was not a defeat in the slightest. It was not a tragedy. It was a triumph. He is no hapless, helpless victim, but a powerful, triumphant victor. He is the lion, the root of David. So John looks, expecting, no doubt, to see a lion, and what he sees is a lamb. Exactly the opposite of what he expected to see. Lambs are the ultimate symbol of weakness. I mean, lambs are completely defenseless. Lambs are subject to uh, every predator known, uh, known to nature. Lambs are helpless. And he is specifically the lamb that was slain. This was a lamb that had been offered as a sacrifice. And he's referred to as a lamb from here on out in the rest of this chapter. The lion of the tribe of Judah has voluntarily made himself a sacrificial lamb for a purpose that will become clear in the verses that come on. So this lion, and by the way, referring to uh, the country I lived in the longest overseas, the, the Turkish word for lion is aslan, aslan. This lion is has voluntarily given himself to be slain. And this is the focus of astonished praise from the hosts of heaven. Jesus is the culmination of everything in the Old Testament. This grounds the person and work of Jesus squarely in everything God has been up to from the book of Genesis. And so this one, this Messiah, is the greater David, the ultimate king who would neither sin nor die and whose reign would last forever. He is the one who, in the ultimate sense of the word, would rule over his people, protect them from their enemies, and provide for their well-being. But he is also the Messiah as the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah, the one who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the one on whom our sin fell. He is the Passover lamb, Christ our Passover, who was sacrificed for us so that while the blood of a lamb simply preserved the children of Israel one night, the the blood of this lamb preserves us from the avenging angel of death forever. He is the real fulfillment of Yom Kippur. He is the the one guilt offering that actually does take away sins. Blood of bulls and goats can't. That was all just signpost pointing forward to what would ultimately happen in Jesus. This is the real substitute, the actually effective guilt offering. And so this last book of the Bible unfolds everything that has come before and ties it all together. The center of all of it is Jesus and the fulfillment of all of God's promises is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole scene depicts the work of Jesus as a glorious triumph, not a tragic martyrdom. Jesus was not a martyr. When he died, he conquered. He succeeded in exactly what he set out to do. And that then leads to the worship of angels. And what a worship service. What a content-filled worship service, which I might add with thankfulness to our, our worship team is exactly what worship should always be. Our worship should be the expression of our theology in in joy and gratitude toward God. That's what it was here. Jesus is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And why is that so? Because he was slain. Because he was slain and he ransomed people for God by his blood. There was a purpose to his death and that purpose was our salvation. And this is the very heart of the gospel. Any other understanding of the gospel is inadequate. Penal substitution is what Jesus came to do. He came to die in the place of those who deserved the wrath of God. And his death saved the unsavable. Uh, That's worthy of the astonished praise of the angels that such an infinite price was paid for people who were so infinitely unworthy like us, for people who had deserved exactly the opposite. And that's the center of our praise as well and rightly so. It should be the center of our praise. Think of everything that flows to us from the death of Jesus on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins, that we who are guilty before God now stand accounted righteous in his sight. We have been reconciled with the God that we made our enemy. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and life from the dead We have been granted repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus. We've been given freedom from our bondage to sin. We've been given growth in holiness and conformity to the image of Christ. We've been given God's preserving power that enables us to persevere in faith to the end. And we've been given the promise of resurrection in the new heavens and new earth and eternal life in infinite joy in God's presence. And all of this is because Jesus shed his blood for us and was slain in our place. The gospel not only provokes us to praise and worship, it is the content of our praise and worship, and we will never get over it for the rest of eternity. And we will never stop enjoying worshiping God. We will never get over just the awe and the love and the worship that we owe unto him. So Jesus was slain, and that causes the the angel's worship, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus was slain for men and women, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that was part of the design from the start. God makes it very clear from the book of Genesis on that although he's focusing on one people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, it's not that his blessing would stop with them, but that they would be the conduit through which all the nations of the earth would receive the blessing of salvation from God that God from the very start intended to be worshiped by every language on earth. He intended to have people knowing and loving and serving him in every corner of the globe and from every people on the planet. And this was, the, this was intrinsic to the design of the atonement. He didn't just save eh, a few sinners. <laughs> he didn't just save sinners in one place. The design from the very start was that the saving work of Jesus was intended for, aimed at, every people group on the planet. And the heaped up phrases leave no ambiguity. You know, tribe, language, people, nation, you name it. However you slice it, however you, you analyze it, there is no one left out. There is no corner of the planet that God says, I don't care about them. There's no group of people on earth who said, ah, yeah, you don't have to worry about them. They're, 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 They're too far gone, or I'm just not interested. No, it is the whole planet in every possible designation you can assign to it that is within the redeeming work of Jesus. And what that means is that the work of Christ on the cross that saved you was designed to save people from all of these people groups on the planet, Your salvation was part of a global plan, and your salvation included you in that plan. And of course, we know that God's plans don't fail, including this one. Go two chapters over, chapter 7, and you'll discover that the atonement was a victory, not a failure. There will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation before the throne worshiping him. And this is where history is going. Remember that the point of unsealing the scroll was to reveal the decrees of God for where history was going. It includes certainly incredible judgment for sin. But here from the very start, we discover that at the heart of all of that though is it includes this plan of God that his saving work would reach to the ends of the earth. That's what's happening in the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. There's there's profound implications to this. Um, Dr. Dockery mentioned that I spent a couple of decades uh, in Central Asia uh, working among Muslims. And I can remember when I went, people say, why are you going there? Um, They're resistant. I mean, you don't really expect anything to happen there, do you? And I answer, well, yes, because God said something would happen there. And that's all I need. I could take the gospel to people who by human standards were resistant and unreachable because no one is beyond the saving purposes of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one is beyond the power of the cross to save, including the people we think the least likely. I mean, are people in that part of the world resistant? Absolutely, yes. Well, guess what? That's because they're spiritually dead. And guess what else? So are you. And so so are all your neighbors here. A dead is dead anywhere. You know, someone in Afghanistan is not more dead than someone in Alabama. Just, Just not true. But the gospel has the power to save people that is equal in every place. I mean, yes, it takes a resurrection from the dead. It happens to be one of God's specialties. He raises dead sinners to life in Christ, and he can do that anywhere. The design of the atonement was to save sinners from all people groups including all the ones we think know there's no hope for them. And that's why I could go from a human perspective, even though it looks like it's hopeless, it's impossible. And let me add that what we saw is that God's promises are true. The gospel is just as powerful to save people in the least likely places as it is in the heart of the Bible belt. And without exception, every single place we went, planted our lives, learned the language, and shared the gospel, we saw people saved, without exception. Which means that if there are supposedly resistant peoples around the world, the issue is not their resistance. The issue has simply been our disobedience. That we have not gone in obedience to the command of Christ because he will honor his word and save people when it's shared. I might add, this is also why as an organization we focus on people groups. We do so because the Bible does from Genesis to Revelation, and the very work of Christ on the cross had such a focus that God intends to redeem people from every kind of person on the planet. This is why we go. We were saved into a global plan of redemption. Jesus is worthy of the reward of his suffering. Brothers and sisters, this is the actual meaning of the history of the world. Uh, The history of the world is not to be found on the pages of any newspaper, is to be found on the pages of Scripture. And human history is headed toward a climax in which there will be those knowing and loving and praising our Lord Jesus Christ from every kind of people on the planet. And it will all result in a worship service. That's where it's all headed to. In some ways, worship team, you're actually ahead of the game. Um, You're preparing for what we're all gonna spend eternity doing because what we're doing is recruiting for the choir. We're recruiting for the choir of heaven those who will join us in worshiping our Lord Jesus. So what does that mean then for this group of students at Southwestern Seminary and Texas Baptist College? What it means is that whatever form of ministry you are headed toward, it must include at its very heart, number one, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. There will be a day in which missions will end. There will never be a day in which worship will end, and the focus of our worship will always be the Lord Jesus. So whatever else you do, make sure that your ministry is focused and centered on the glory of Jesus, and that it is constantly, even spontaneously, breaking out into praise and into worship for the glory of who he is and what he has done. Make certain that your ministry is Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Make certain that your ministry engages in evangelism wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Uh, I'm responsible for field personnel orientation at the IMB. And one of the things we are, are doing in our program now is sending our our missionaries in training out into the community in Richmond, Virginia to share the gospel. Now, we want that to be done in a way that is is church-centric. So what we've done is we've recruited churches that we know are faithful to the gospel, and we pair up our prospective missionaries with them so that any fruit that happens can be followed up by that specific church. Well, first we just said, okay, can we refer people to you? Then we said, hey, want to come along with us when we do it. And now it's like, okay, it's coming up. How many people from your church will go with us? And when we first started doing it, it was, it was kind of amusing. People would say, you can't do that here. And it was sort of like, watch us. <laughs> We're going to do it. And um, consistently, without fail, we have seen multiple people come to faith in Jesus Christ through contact evangelism in the city of Richmond as we've gone out. And that has had a wonderful effect on the churches who suddenly said, oh, you can do it. And I was very pleased to see in my own church, uh, some students from Virginia Commonwealth University say, why do we have to wait for the people from the IMB to come? Why don't we just do this? And so now there are People from my church that go on campus at VCU every Saturday. And we've recently baptized five people who came to faith in Jesus as a result of that. Um, The gospel hasn't lost its power. The issue is, will we share it? And whatever form of ministry God calls you into, not only must you be specifically focused on praise and worship of the Lord Jesus, you must also be focused on drawing others to praise and worship the Lord Jesus through sharing the gospel. And let me add, I'm convinced that the very act of sharing the gospel is an act of worship. We are proclaiming the praises, the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are displaying the holy character of God that makes our our, our salvation necessary. We are displaying his wrath against sin and at the same time his, his astonishing mercy and grace towards sinners. That he would pour out his wrath on his son in our place. And we are displaying his mercy that summons people to repent and believe in him. So worship the Lord Jesus in your assembly, and worship the Lord Jesus in your community, whatever you do, through the sharing of the gospel with those who have never heard it. But it can't stop where you are. The reality is is painful. Most of the world has no access to the gospel. We live in the most gospel-saturated country in the world, Um, The year I was born, there were 2.9 billion people on this planet. Today, there's over 8 billion people on this planet, and over 4 billion of them are in what we call unreached people groups, effectively no access to the gospel. That means that there's more than a billion more people with no access to the gospel today than even lived on the planet the year I was born, and that number is only increasing. Right now, we estimate that that of 11,000 people groups on earth, 6,000 of them fall in that unreached category. And that means that people will be born, grow up, live, and die without ever hearing the only message that can save them from the wrath that we all deserve because of our sin. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no salvation apart from hearing and responding to that good news. So my challenge to you is this. Yes, there is desperate need for healthy church life here in this country. And if God specifically calls you to that, make sure that you are doing it for the sake of the global glory of God. But here, you're going to be lining up with a lot of other people for every pastoral or church ministry role that might exist. We have hundreds of open positions that we have the funding to send people to that no one is responding to. And there you would go to a place that no one else is. You would go to a place where there is no access to the gospel. You would go to fulfill God's purpose in history of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, It is said that uh, Francis Xavier said to his colleagues back in Europe when he was in Asia, give up your small ambitions and come east to preach the gospel. And so I would say if your ambition is to be the pastor of a megachurch and have a huge social social media platform and be a famous author, that's way too small. Give up that small ambition. I would like to offer you a much better one. Go to the ends of the earth where no one's going to know you. Labor in obscurity. See God do amazing things and die. And let him get all the glory, which is what's intended to be. So we've seen in this passage the centrality of our Lord Jesus. We've seen his glorious identity as both lion and lamb, as the royal, majestic, conquering king who conquered in, in incredible irony through offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We have seen that the scope of this sacrifice was intended to be the entire world and not just our little bit of it. We have seen that specifically that is is divided up into the peoples and tongues and nations of the earth because God desires to have a people from all of them. And we have seen that our salvation, as glorious as it is, was like with Israel, not intended to terminate on us but that we have been drawn into that global plan of God. And so my challenge to you is ask yourself, not am I called to global mission? Because the answer is, if you're saved, you are. But how am I called to fulfill that? And I would simply urge you this, make your default that you go where you're needed most before you go where others are already laboring. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you that the gospel reached us. Thank you for the faithful labors of saints through the ages who preserved your word and preserved your truth. Thank you for the individual who shared the gospel with each one of us. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that it wouldn't terminate on us. That through all the believers in this room, Others would hear right here in Fort Worth and to the very ends of the earth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.